0: Hey, what's up, guys? It's Rico here, Sierra SourceFindAsia, co-host of Manitra Podcast, and the host of the Source Asia YouTube channel, of course, back with another one. This episode was really cool. I got to sit down with Johnny Lowe. He has a sort of video editing background and is a co-founder of a brand called Icosa. They have a cold brew accessory line. Um, actually had raised high six figures on Kickstarter about three, four years ago, and sort of parlayed that, expanded the e-commerce brand. And then I think they've also launched another product before as well. That was pretty successful. And this year because of COVID he wanted to help entrepreneurs sort of achieve the same goals, especially during times where access to capital and and things like that would be difficult to come about. He's a co-founder of another company called playground theory, which essentially puts together a blueprint and a step-by-step process to help you guys figure out how to do a six figure crowdfunding campaign. So what i really enjoyed about this episode was um i didn't know who johnny was prior to this like i had heard of him but i realized we have all the same friends we very similar you know very similar backstory you know he knows maurice he knows my business partner he knows uh some of our other guys like don who's also in the crowdfunding space I and mean, he spent time in chiang mai he's been around the same circles as me the you know four-hour work week digital nomad Crew, you know that that kind of stuff, and all these people that sort of moved to Asia. I mean, one of these days we should probably do a documentary about about the the generation that I'm thinking about. It's pretty much the people that moved to Asia around between 2014. I'll say 2000 at the earliest. I'll say 2013 ish. To like 2016 and then what they've accomplished since that time period in terms of people starting amazon businesses or myself with a consulting company um digital marketing companies these guys with their cold brew coffee brand so yeah i know it was just awesome to talk to them about that stuff we share a lot of the same philosophies in business and life we are connected in in terms of our social circle without knowing it it's such a small world and I just really enjoyed this conversation. I've been having some really great conversations lately on the on the podcast. I think a big part of it is we have, I guess our podcast has grown in stature. So we get more interview requests. Like we, we get like probably two or three interview requests every week. So I'm a little bit more cautious about who we bring on. And then also just having our content marketing guy there. Um, he is actively seeking and weeding through the right. Types of people, and then recommending to me, and then you know we have guests on that also recommend other people. So it's been really, really cool. Uh, And I think just in general because of COVID, I think a lot of people are have more time to sit down and do an interview than they did. Because sometimes I'd reach out to people, and you know people were traveling and busy, and I was traveling, so it was was hard to to schedule out these interviews. But yeah, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this podcast. I certainly did. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. All right, so, opening question When you meet somebody in a social setting that's not from your industry, how do you answer the question what do you do
1: so I feel like a lot of people that travel and do ecom have a lot of hats <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's a funny question to ask and I sometimes decide how I want to answer the easiest is that I'm an ecom entrepreneur and the biggest reason that I love ecom is that it gives me the freedom to travel being location independent being able to work from your desktop and having a Wi-Fi connection that's you know that's freedom to me but Other than that, within e-com, there's so many things, right? There's sourcing and procurement, there's product design, there's advertising, branding. So in that realm of things, between me and my business partners, I really specialize in branding. Being able to create a compelling brand for people to want to buy something that either they're already interested in or they've never heard of. And they're suddenly excited to buy it because it just seems so new and novel. And within that realm of branding, uh, I can niche down further. And my biggest, my best niche is being able to tell stories that make people feel something, whether it's excitement, happiness, awe, because I love creating videos—videos videos that make people want to either buy something or take an action.
0: Awesome. So, just kind of, can you give a brief background on you know where you're from? How did you, how did your life lead you into into entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting story. I mean, I originally started as an engineer. I graduated from Canada in a program called Mechatronics Engineering. So it's a combination of... Hey,
0: which, which school did you go to?
1: Waterloo, University of oh, Waterloo. Oh my
0: God. Yeah, my best friend uh, studied mechatronics. His name is Rohan Mohimkar. He runs a company called Smart Teacher.
1: Rohan, what year did you graduate?
0: uh i think it should have been 2010 or 2011 somewhere yeah
1: i think he's from my class
0: (laughs) so you know rohan
1: that's crazy it's like (laughs) it's been 10 years since i've heard the name so (laughs) but i'm pretty sure if i looked in my class you know graduating book i'd probably find him sounds familiar
0: ask him ask him there's only so
1: many Johnnies. there's only i'm the only johnny from the class so maybe he knows
0: me it's a very small world.
1: <laughs> that's amazing. It'd be amazing. Not only, not only,
0: I mean, if you know him, that's crazy, but not only is he like my best friend, he was actually my first client. So when I moved to China, the first product that we sourced was for his company. Oh, wow. Prodigy.
1: Okay. Yeah. If he knows a Ted Livingston who, who, who found a kick messenger, then that's mm. the same class.
0: Awesome.
1: But yeah, so I graduated from Mechatronics. So for anyone listening who doesn't know, it's like robotics, which is a combination of Computer, mechanical, electrical, all-in-one. And it was so new at the time that there were no jobs. So I was just pigeonholed into electrical engineering, which there's no innovation in electrical engineering. Like there's transformers, there's power distribution. It's boring. And so I was like, my soul was dying and I wanted a way out. And that way out for me was my passion in video production. So I very, within two months of my first full-time job, I quit. And then I managed to get a, a job as a video producer at a friend's marketing agency. And if anyone's ever heard of Groupon from the U.S., I was working at the Groupon's biggest competitor company, which is teambuy.ca back in Canada, which is now bankrupt. So my friend thought it was a good idea to hire me as a video producer uh, with very little, if not zero video production experience but that was my jump start into a new career and basically I was producing videos like crazy and I was learning on the job and eventually I ended up doing my own thing in 2013 freelancing and creating a video agency and I was bootstrapped I was like a starving artist and I was essentially fed up with not making any money and my then business partner which is still my current one uh, he's like why don't we get into e-commerce? He was one of the sales managers also back at TeamBuy. Uh, TeamBuy was one of the first websites in Canada to start sourcing products and selling products online. So this is way before Amazon was really big and way before e-commerce in Canada was really big. So he saw us a really golden opportunity to get into products before it was really popular. So we didn't actually end up doing that until 2015 when the hype was really gaining traction, thanks to people like Scott Volker with Amazing Seller. And our first product, we, we launched silicone wedding rings. That market got saturated really fast, but we managed to break even. That,
0: that definitely sounds like a 2015 Amazon <laughs> product.
1: I know, right? Yeah, but we decked yeah. it out. We were like, okay, what can we do better than everyone else? Like, oh, let's, let's, let's make the product box so amazing that it's, it's gonna look like a wedding box like a wedding ring box and the box costs more than the product, right? The product costs like pennies and the box costs like $2. And at the time, like, why would anyone on Amazon pay $2 for a box when the ring only costs like 10 cents? So we were the first to do that. Everyone copied us within like three months market got saturated. So we exited, but we, we came out with a profit. So that was good. And that transitioned to the following year in 2016, we're like, okay, if we can do this for one product, what if we could like? What is it going to take to reach a million dollars in our in our second year? So like, okay, it's we need thirty products, each doing like ten k. So that's you know thirty k a month. It's roughly a million dollars at the end of the year. And what ended up happening was most of the products eventually failed because we didn't realize how how thin we were spreading ourselves. But one of the products succeeded, and uh, we we designed this cold brew coffee maker that we were originally gonna launch on Amazon, but then Amazon had this terms of service change where you couldn't pay or incentivize reviews. And that was like our go-to launch strategy. Let's launch, we we discount and incentivize uh, our products so that we get a ton of reviews, automatically rank on page one of Amazon. And that was the thing that everyone was doing. Um, but then Amazon changed it all, so we couldn't do that anymore. So we pivoted uh, our that cold brew coffee maker to Kickstarter. And that was the start of something that we had never done before. Let's launch on Kickstarter, build a website and see what happens. And it ended up raising $1 million on its own. So all awesome. the other products just quickly <laughs> fell to the back burner. And this Arctic cold brew coffee maker ended up becoming our million dollar
0: product. That's funny how life works like that sometimes. <laughs> I, I was going to say... It- even if the product didn't have such a, a huge launch on, on crowdfunding, it's, you're still very early in terms of creating your own brand. And that's kind of like what I tell when, I, when people ask me now, you know, if they want to jump on Amazon, I'm like, it's, it's, it's tough. You probably should think about starting your own brand because even the people that sold on Amazon or are selling on Amazon eventually end up branding. Like that's the only way to have a really defensible product, right? Or a business rather.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So that's something that we learned by accident (laughs) because you can't just put up a PL product on Kickstarter. It's just simply not allowed. And even if you did, people would call you out so fast. like, oh, I found this on AliExpress, I found this on Alibaba. What's new about this? Why should this be on crowdfunding? So you really have to create hype. And the only way you create hype on Kickstarter and crowdfunding in general is if you have either something interesting to say to your brand or you have a really innovative product. And and if you have both, that's obviously the, the golden standard for having a successful launch on Kickstarter. So for us, that was our first product. We did six hundred and twelve thousand dollars on Kickstarter. We did another three hundred k on Indiegogo, and then upsells uh, in BackerKit after the campaigns. We did in total one point one million dollars, pretty much. So that was that was crazy. So the next year, you know, we were burnt out. We're like, okay, we've made some money. Let's take it easy. Let's travel and, and and do what we've always wanted to do. Try out this digital nomad thing that everyone's talking about. So we're like, okay, let's travel for three months or four months this year. So we went out to Chiang Mai, which a lot, of, a lot of digital nomads go to Chiang Mai to check out. So we stayed there for a few weeks.
0: What year were you in Chiang Mai?
1: We were in Chiang Mai the first time, 2016, just for two weeks. And then we ended up living there for over a year and a half from 2018. Until um, until last year,
0: just hearing your story, I'm I'm just seeing a lot of crossover with my own story and some of my closest friends. So I have two questions. Like one is a little bit like about Chiang Mai. Did you ever meet people like um, Maurice? Uh, I yeah, I to pronounce his, Maurice. is a long time Amazon seller. He launched his own product. Yeah. Yeah. Um, through crowdfunding. Yeah, he's a good friend. We hang out a lot. <laughs> so yeah, we—I've uh, known him from Enter China days. So I knew him when he was uh, still studying, actually, in Shenzhen. And then uh, my business partner Michael Shearhorn—he was out in Chiang Mai for a little bit over a year. Yeah. Um, around, around the same time as you, and he's also part of the same network. So you might have you might have met a lot of the people that I know personally.
1: Yeah, there's like Don calls him China Mike.
0: <laughs> China Mike, yeah, China Mike. That's my guy. Um, <laughs> and then Nick, uh, Nick Narov, he has a YouTube channel as well. He Not... was out in Chiang Mai around the same time.
1: I don't know if I've met Nick, but there's definitely a lot of people that uh, there's also uh, Thomas that I think was part of the Enter China crowd. But yeah, a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of people that are in the go to the same places.
0: So then my second question, which was more business-related, is just, again, hearing your story being similar to... Just being involved with crowdfunding, the whole digital nomad scene, wanting to travel, live in Asia. What kind of content were you consuming? You mentioned Scott Volker's podcast, but like, were there any other books or, or blogs that you were like really reading and, and, and paying attention to during that time period?
1: Scott Volker was like the main one, and even then, I only listened to maybe... Uh, a dozen of his episodes. After that, I really focused more on business books at a very high level. And that was because there's just so much content out there. And I felt like a lot of them were just, they weren't going deep enough into the strategies of how to be successful. And in order to get those strategies, they had to pay like thousands of dollars, like the, um, like amazing.com. I never ended up going with them, but I have friends that did. And there's so many other people. But yeah, Scott Volker was the main one. And then we did go out to uh, Hong Kong Global Sources Summit back in 2017. And that's where we also met a lot of other really cool people and learned a lot. But those would be like the most we've invested in terms of course material. Sorry. And the last one I'm, uh, I want to mention is Ezra Firestone, who was more like a Shopify, Facebook per guy.
0: I was listening to Scott Volker's podcast because a lot of my Clients were selling in Amazon, so I was just kind of trying to get into the mindset. And I'm familiar with Ezra as well, because when I started doing webinars, he had like some free courses on on how to structure your webinars. And yeah, I I totally agree. I think that even that time period for me, I was only listening to maybe one or two Amazon FBA gurus, if you want to call them that. I think everybody else, like you said, like the whole point was not, hey, I made this money on Amazon, I can teach you how to do it. So the free stuff wasn't really going in depth and then you don't know what you would choose if you're going to pay for something. So my focus was more on, on, business books as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. Cause you can get a lot of them free these days. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, they've spent, you know, decades researching their stuff so they know what they're talking about. So definitely a lot of really awesome books on just how to run a business, how to set up e-com even some really good stuff there.
0: Uh, what were some of your earliest struggles uh, in, in launching your initial product, both on Amazon and then also the, the crowdfunding?
1: Uh, so many, man. Uh, so when we started getting into e-com, the first struggle was just even understanding how to do sourcing and how to talk to suppliers. Our very first hiccup or road speed bump was uh, with the silicone wedding rings. We were trying to import our first order into the U.S., And for whatever reason, our supplier was like, oh, we can't even export this because there's some type of infringement on your brand. And our brand back in the day was Anchor Rings. I don't think you can find it on Amazon anymore. And the Chinese company was like, oh, Anchor is a registered brand in China. And because of this infringement, we're not allowed to export uh, your product. And I was thinking like, this is insane. Like, why is this even a problem? So Getting around that, we used Photoshop and made like a fake, like stamp of you know the Chinese people use this seal, which is the same as a signature. We we like made a fake document, legal document, said like we have the legal right. There's no infringement. Anchor is
0: like a registered brand. Wait, wait, so you made you made the fake uh, red, the red seal? Yeah, we made a
1: fake red seal. I found one. I <laughs> it, and uh, and they cleared it. They're like, okay, <laughs> so. Cause we didn't want to have to go through proper legal channels. Like it was this yep. it was the first week of December and we needed this stuff like ASAP.
0: Also, I also like, I think at that stage, you guys were small enough that it's not really, it's not really going to be a, as big of an issue. Whereas, um, I think the same thing happened to Apple when they were first trying to export the, the first version of the iPads. There was a company in China that had registered the name iPad. <laughs> okay. Um, and so they blocked them from shipping out their first uh, shipment yeah
1: yeah yeah so we definitely knew we weren't as big as apples so i don't know why anyone would care about the, the brand anchor which is the most generic name that anyone could have come up with but we got around that that was the first road bump, and of many and so uh the other big one that was actually serious was how to scale products and sorry how to launch and scale products properly So the second year of business, we were like, okay, let's launch 30 products, of which we only actually got to 14, which is still a lot. And like I said, a lot of those products, most of them actually failed. Only two of them are still up and running on Amazon. And what we realized was there's huge capital risk, especially today with launching products on Amazon. You know, Even if you source a product, there's no amount of testing or validation you can really do to give you full confidence that your product will succeed on Amazon. I have friends who are in the skincare business. They do $400,000 a year, uh, 200K of which are on Amazon. And skincare is you know, a really tough market to be in, but they've managed to be successful. And even for them, their product launches are each uh, like 50K to 100K per product. And they, you know, two of them failed. So that meant they lost $100,000 US. So we experienced the same thing back in 2016, even though we thought we had a, a solid launch strategy, we lost, you know, easily hundred thousand dollars us from all those failed products. So it was just really tough trying to figure out how to nail a launch strategy that had some type of guaranteed ROI in a short frame, right? Because an, an ROI over two years is definitely not as good as an ROI in six months. You want to be able to figure out whether or not it's a pass or a fail sooner than later so that you're not bleeding money. So that was, uh, that was something that we had to figure out the hard way after losing over $100,000 in failed launches. And I guess the bright side was we found the crowdfunding model, which was kind of an accident. And then we recently did a second Kickstarter last year for another coffee product. And that ended up hitting $290,000 or pretty much $300,000. So Safe to say, we have a pretty solid launch model, at least for crowdfunding.
0: Before we get into what you guys also do with Playground uh, Theory, like what has changed in terms of the crowdfunding uh, crowdfunding climate when you guys first did your first campaign versus now? Because I know, like my business partner, he launched; he had two successful Kickstarter's. I think one was like in two thousand and twelve, and then the other one was a few years after that. And he was like, he was telling me how during that. During those early years, you almost didn't have to do much to raise six figures. Like you didn't have to spend as much money. It was less saturated, obviously less jaded people who were less skeptical about the products. I'm very curious for somebody like yourself, who's doing, you know, six figure, seven figure campaigns a little bit later on. What is that like?
1: Yeah. So even from my first product to my second product on Kickstarter and, and helping other creators to launch products, it's changed pretty quickly. And I would attribute that change to two things. The first one is Facebook ads. So back in 2016, that's when the Facebook boom, gold rush was still hot. We got a one to 10, a 10 to one ROAS on ad spend, a return on ad spend. So every dollar we put in, we got $10 out, which is, you just can't get that right now with Facebook ads. So. In our, I, I would call it a graduating class of Kickstarter, during the time when we, our first product was on Kickstarter, there were dozens of million dollar campaigns. And I would attribute a lot of that to, to how cheap Facebook ads was and how effective they were. And that was in combination with the novelty of Kickstarter. So Kickstarter was, has been around since I think 2009 or 10, but it didn't really start to gain traction until Facebook ads were really hot. So with the novelty of crowdfunding and just a side note for anyone listening, crowdfunding is essentially a glorified group buying website or deals website. And so if you combine, you know, group buying when it was hot, uh, it's now become like Kickstarter and crowdfunding. So if you combine group buying or group deals with Facebook ads, it's just like a perfect storm. So back in 2016, that was the perfect storm. Getting the best deal for the coolest year, and Facebook ads being really cheap, uh, with a high ROAS. So, a lot of people were able to make a lot of money, you know, in 30 or 45 days during the campaign. Today, as we all know, Facebook ads is getting really expensive. I think the average return on ad spend now that you get is like between two and five. Five if you're lucky, but for us, I think we hit like 2.6 for our last campaign. So, Maybe it's a function of the product that we had. It was way, way too niche, or maybe it's a trend in the market. But from what I'm hearing, it's Facebook ads are definitely more expensive. And then also, people, like you said, are way more jaded. There's too many people launching products that don't know how to run a brand or scale a brand, and they end up not being able to even deliver their product. So a lot of people getting scammed, or the product itself has way too many quality issues because of people... You know, they don't know how to source properly. They've never manufactured a product at scale. So they might have, a, you know, you've heard of the Fidget Cube, right? One of the yep. most funded products nice. on Kickstarter. And those guys clearly had no idea what they were doing. And they raised millions of dollars for a fidget. They, they created the fidget market, right? And sold tens of thousands of units. And they don't exist anymore as a brand.
0: I was involved with a lot of the fidget. Budget related products during <laughs> yeah. that time period, and and just in terms of the crowdfunding sourcing thing, it's like yeah, I can talk about that all day. In terms of just the the mistakes that people make with the the, the lack of focus on, on on sourcing, I think. So, me and my business partner, we always talk about how people think that China is just like a giant Walmart, and you could just be like, hey you know, fidget cube or whatever the product is like, let's just go. It's going to take us five minutes to find the factory. Let's jump on Alibaba and have a conversation. It's like, nope, it's, especially with something that's an original design, you know, it's going to take you a long time to get that accomplished if you want to do it properly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I used to think too. Yeah. You can just hump on Alibaba, jump on Alibaba, find a, a partner that has something remotely close to what you've seen on Kickstarter and they should be able to make it. But it's much more nuanced than if you're actually serious about creating a brand. Because if you just partner with anyone, like I've done in the past, and if you're scaling at you know, 10,000 units in your first order because you've gone viral on Kickstarter, but then the quality is you know, like only 50% of what it should be, you're going to have 5,000 angry customers. So there goes your brand because you've lost the returning value of, cu- of 5,000 customers, which is a lot. And on top of that, you have a huge customer issue. So you're going to have to hire someone full time to answer those 5,000 customers on a, on a daily basis. So, you know, having good quality products, finding a proper sourcing partner, like there's so many things that people don't think about for sure that I'm sure you've dealt with in the past.
0: Tell my audience, for those who don't know about Playground Theory.
1: Oh, yeah, sure, sure. So Playground Theory is something that we launched recently during covid it was born out of a, definitely out of the circumstance. So with a lot more people having issues with not only fulfillment, but just being able to develop products because the factories were completely shut down. The supply chain was completely broken. You couldn't ship anything out of China. And even then you couldn't fulfill. Like if you had warehouses in, in, in China, you couldn't get anything out of China. And if you did, it'd take months. And I mean, in some cases it still does take months. So launching a product was pretty much not possible, right? What turned into what used to be like a two-month launch process became six months because of either supply chain issues, sourcing and procurement issues, or fulfillment issues. So we saw an opportunity to be able to help people launch products using crowdfunding because people on crowdfunding are used to having really long lead times. You know, you pay for a product's pre-order. It's a pre-order platform, so you pay for a product upfront. The product doesn't have to exist. All that exists is a prototype. And maybe one year later, you'll actually get your product. That's totally normal. Versus e-com in the States, it's like, I order my product today, I'll get it tomorrow because of Amazon.com um, and Prime Shipping. But with Kickstarter and crowdfunding, it's completely normal to not get your product for a year. So with the issues of COVID that have been introduced, launching a product using crowdfunding and having a lead time of a year is totally fine, even though it's actually because you can't ship. So being able to help people to navigate this current climate with all of these delays was one of the reasons why we wanted to launch, but also because a lot of people getting laid off and having, being in a different headspace, being able to have more time pursuing their passion or consider a different career. So a lot of people were like, Hmm, You know, what can I do with my life? So a lot of it would be in considering to launch an e-commerce product or have that jet set lifestyle where they could travel and have a location independent business. So combining those two things, we're like, okay, we can, we have experience. We've actually helped other companies raise in total $7 million through crowdfunding. So again, the perfect storm, why don't we combine all the circumstance with our skill and launch a program where we could teach people how to achieve the same success that we have. So we've created a what we call a, a, a launch blueprint that will help people to raise six figures in crowdfunding. And that's something we've been able to consistently do for our clients in the past. So yeah, you can take this six-week program and we'll walk you through the entire process.
0: It makes a lot of sense because um, what happened after the 2008 financial crisis was a lot of people ended up starting their own businesses. And I think this particular pandemic is forcing people to think a little bit. like a lot of times in 2008, people started brick and mortar businesses and also e-commerce. But I think this time around people know that one of the, the main types of businesses that have been able to survive or thrive during this time period has been anything that involves online or, you know, location independent work. So, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of people and I'm sure, you know, obviously you're, you're, you're living it. I think there's going to be a lot of people that are trying to launch their own products and, launch their own e-commerce brand. yeah exactly the e-com
1: like the e-com rush has never been clear with amazon stock just going through the roof and e-com in general just i I don't know the numbers off the top of my head but it's gone up insane like an insane amount so being able to make money in your sleep sure that's one thing but but knowing that you you know you can keep your business running because you don't have a storefront that you have to shut down it gives you that security and peace of mind and with people working from home forced to work at home and and knowing that they don't have to be, you know, in an office to make money. It's just opening a lot of doors and opening. I I didn't think this would ever happen for like maybe 10 years, but COVID is is like just changing people's mindsets so fast. So there's never been a clear indication that, you know, if you're not, if you don't have an e-commerce business, then you really have to question how you're going to be successful in the long term.
0: For sure. What is the, I guess from recent experiences, like what, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that potential clients come to you with when, with regards to crowdfunding?
1: The biggest misconceptions about crowdfunding is that anyone can do it. I'm, you can definitely do it if you have no experience in e <laughs> but just because you have like an amazing idea doesn't necessarily mean you'll be successful. I've had people approach me that say, hey, you know, I have this cool idea for a new coffee product or, I had this new COVID-related product idea, but they have zero marketing experience, zero e-commerce experience, zero sourcing experience. It's definitely gonna be an uphill battle. So the bare minimum to be able to launch in crowdfunding is some e commerce experience. Like you've either launched one product on Amazon or at least you have a marketing background because you're, <laughs> it's just gonna be a lot to learn. So you could take our course or you can even hire us uh, as consultants. But you need to have a baseline for for what you're getting into. Another misconception is that people think that they need to have their entire plan and their product and their brand figured out. But Kickstarter, all you need is a working prototype, at least by the time that you launch. So they don't just take... Indiegogo will take photorealistic renders. You don't need a prototype. There's lots of those going around. And it's kind of a a double-edged sword because you end up with a lot of people getting scammed because the prototype never existed. So even the creators don't know if it'll work. Uh, But with Kickstarter, um, they're a bit more serious. So you do need a working prototype. You need to show that it works in a single uncut video. And that's all you need to raise six figures, right? I've seen so many products hit a million dollars and all they had was a single working prototype. You don't need to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in inventory and risk not selling any of it. That's the great thing about Kickstarter or crowdfunding in general, that you can raise money without having to risk a lot of capital in inventory and even R&D. So you can basically fund your dream idea through Kickstarter and through crowdfunding. So those are the two most important ones, the two biggest misconceptions of Kickstarter.
0: It's, it sounds like you have a, like a preference towards Kickstarter. Is there any particular reason? Why is it just because Indiegogo, there's more room for scams or... Is there some difference in the, in the way their, their systems work respectively?
1: Uh, There's pros and cons. Kickstarter is about double the size in terms of the audience. In terms of just organic monthly visitors, Kickstarter, it has 25 million. Indiegogo only has about 11 million people that visit their website on a regular basis. So it's just in in terms of sheer size, you'll raise more money on Kickstarter And the other thing about Kickstarter is that because Indiegogo is trying to be different, they have a lot more features. And one of those features is Indiegogo in demand. So anyone who has a crowdfunding campaign, it could be Kickstarter, it could be other crowdfunding platforms like GoFundMe or even Makawake from Japan. Indiegogo allows you to transition from your original crowdfunding platform to their crowdfunding platform and continue generating sales. And the reason why that's valuable is let's say, you know, you raised half a mil on Kickstarter and it's not going to be another six months until you can actually launch your product because you simply don't have inventory. So, you know, why would you lose the momentum of selling pre-ordered products when you can launch on Indiegogo in-demand? So Indiegogo gives you that that opportunity to continue selling pre-orders. So, yeah, you can go from Kickstarter to Indiegogo, but you can't go from Indiegogo to Kickstarter. So a lot of people, it's more common to launch on Kickstarter, raise a lot of money because they have a bigger audience and then transition to Indiegogo in-demand to continue doing pre-orders.
0: So you so still course, get the best of both worlds in exactly, that situation. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So
1: you can still launch on Indiegogo to, to begin with. And the benefits of doing that is Indiegogo has Facebook, uh, they allow you to embed the Facebook pixel for better ad tracking and conversion tracking. Kickstarter does not, for whatever reason, They still don't allow you to embed the Facebook pixel. So you can't measure your conversion rates from your funnel to a purchase. Um, You have to do it through Google through this really convoluted method, but it's not as accurate. Indiegogo is really simple. It's just like an e-commerce website. You can track the person from the ads all the way through to the purchase. So you can really, really get your audience
0: right. Probably one of the answers to this question would be, it depends on the product and it depends on who your target audience is. But is there an amount that you usually tell people to to be prepared to spend, not, not on the, the product itself, but just on the actual campaign, like the marketing side of it, you know, the video production and, and all that good stuff, and obviously the Facebook ads?
1: Yeah. I mean, you could launch on a shoestring budget. Like, that's what we did with our first product. I think we launched with – I mean, I do the videos myself but because <laughs> I'm a video producer, so I'm lucky in that way. So in all, I think our out-of-pocket cost was $5,000, and we made, you know, $620. 12000 which I think is really hard. (laughs) If not, it's a unicorn situation. But in today's circumstance, I think 20% of your campaign should be invested into ad marketing. Uh, Sorry, so I should clarify. So if if you were to aim for $100,000 of total revenue raised on crowdfunding, then you should expect to spend $20,000 on ads. So about 20%. And then in terms of uh, the actual creative assets, you know, building a website, doing ad copy, creating a video, I mean, the bare minimum you wanna spend on a high quality video is $2,000. Anything less than that, you're paying for what you get. But they can range from $2,000 all the way up to easily $15,000 for a video. So it really depends on the type of product that you have and how much you care about the quality of the video and how you can repurpose it for other you know, creative assets in your brand. If you're thinking long-term, it doesn't hurt to invest in your marketing because that, that money will come back to you and you'll be creating an evergreen asset for your,
0: for your brand. That makes sense. Is playground theory the main thing that you guys are working on right now besides the, the products that you'd launched previously? Uh,
1: it's actually probably like our 20%. So 80% mm-hmm. of our time is spent on growing our coffee brand. So that's brewhouse.com. You can go and check out our our past Kickstarter products. And we launched our second Kickstarter uh, last year, 2019 in July. And uh, it was doing really well up until COVID. (laughs) It's a coffee product. So obviously, uh, all the coffee shops around the world shut down um, during COVID. So that kind of put a hamper in our plans. We wanted to, you know, launch in all of the biggest coffee expos around the world. And we had a lot of really big distribution partnerships lined up because that's the best model to go with coffee products. So now we're just starting to wrap up again and, and work out those partnerships. So the other 20% is playground theory. So helping people to launch successful crowdfunding to six figures through the, the Blueprint Masterclass program. And then if you want more of like a, a turnkey solution, we also have consulting. So that's more for high touch. Like you you want hands-on um, guidance to raising six figures we also can do that too so we have a couple clients but we can only have so much capacity so it really depends it's very it really depends on what product do you have and if it's a fit for for us
0: we touched on like traveling at the top of the podcast like what like your experiences being in Asia and and, and meeting other entrepreneurs how has that helped your business because I, I know for me, like the, the network that I've developed, I, I'm in the Philippines right now, but I, used to, I lived in China for five years. It's been extremely invaluable in, in terms of growing my business.
1: Yeah, man. A lot of people think that, uh, you know, the digital nomad title is all about going to nice beaches and working whenever you want for four hours a week. You know, shout out to Tim Ferriss. But for me, it was really about meeting awesome people that are really successful. And it's it's not even going to you know in Chiang Mai they had these like Amazon meetups, which consistently I've heard are not the best place to meet successful people. <laughs> the most successful people are the ones that are too busy to go to meetups. So actually, I met the most successful people at coffee shops. You know, not even at like the co-working spaces. They're at coffee shops, just doing their own thing. And the best network I had was in Chiang Mai. You know, a lot of a lot of mutual friends like Maurice, Don, Thomas having a network of people that you can go out with on a friday night you can go for dinner have drinks and then at 9 p.m we'll all be like okay let's go home and work (laughs) that's the kind of community that we had in chiang mai like we, we weren't party people we just wanted to meet know that there were other people that were that were pushing to be their best not just in their business but also in terms of health like we we had like a group of 10 people we were all on keto all doing intermittent fasting, all on keto, and not because we had to lose weight. We we were also working out, but it was because we wanted to focus more. Like when you're in a state of ketosis, you're like in this—you have tunnel vision—and so we were all after like this flow state to be able to work more and make more money. So, finding that tribe of people that is in the same headspace—you want to be successful. You're also doing the same thing. So it's easy to, to ask like, hey, I had this issue on Amazon. How do you deal with it? Or, hey, look, I'm, I'm launching this new product. I need like a, a 3D animator. Do you know someone? You know, knowing that you have help and it's one call away and they have access to their own networks is just accelerated our business and our success uh, tremendously.
0: Are you in Canada now or are you uh, in another country?
1: Yeah, right now I'm in Canada. <laughs> so... I flew back for uh, a video project, and it was only supposed to be a two month uh, stint. And then, right in the middle of it, COVID—the COVID lockdown—happened. So I'm kind of stuck here indefinitely until uh, Asia opens up its borders again.
0: Yeah, it's like uh, a lot of my friends have gone back home, and I'm just like, I don't. With the Philippines, the borders are closed, so if I leave then I won't be able to come back, and I have a one-year lease, so I, I don't want to be, I don't wanna be <laughs> stuck outside of the country.
1: Yeah, I have a girlfriend back in Malaysia I haven't seen in about seven months, so oh, uh, that's, that's, <laughs> you know, that's the main reason I want to go back, uh, hopefully sooner than later, but I'm waiting, I'm waiting anxiously for Malaysia to open its borders.
0: I had a girlfriend in China, because like, what happened with me was uh, I left in January for Chinese New Year, and I went to Indonesia for a month, and I was supposed to go back to China, and then you know I, I my plan was kind of to move here in April, and she was potentially going to follow me afterwards, and yeah, we ended up like I didn't go back to China obviously because of COVID, and that's done so well. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. you know the Philippines is a good place to be if you're rebounding.
1: I can imagine, yeah. I wish I could go to any of those places at this point. <laughs> Unfortunately, Malaysia won't even let its citizens leave. So it's not even mm-hmm. like I can take her out and we can meet somewhere in like Eastern Europe where the borders are open and there's no lockdown or quarantine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so they, they won't even let their people leave. So we're kind of like at a,
0: what's a, what, I mean, what's the what's the logic, Vienna Is it just they're scared that people are going to go and bring it back?
1: Yeah, exactly. Just like any country, you know, you yeah. have yeah. citizens, you know, even in the US, you have citizens that can leave. So there are countries that will take anyone, even US citizens, and then they travel back and they bring in COVID and they don't, you know, US doesn't have a real quarantine in place. We have to yep. quarantine for 14 days. Yeah. So yes. that's the fear, right? That, that you'll have people that will defy the lockdown or the quarantine and just spread the virus. So Malaysia circumvented that by saying no one's allowed to leave, <laughs> which is smart, but it sucks for people like me. You know, we have uh, part, long-term partners that, that we want to see the
0: man, I'm just uh, moving to the sort of closing questions. What is the smallest thing you've done that's brought you the largest results in your business? Definitely moving
1: quickly. I watched this Gary Vee podcast or, or a video on Instagram recently, and he talked about you know, the difference between strategizing and execution. And although you need a really good strategy in order to execute, obviously, but a lot of people use strategy as an excuse for not taking action or for being idle in their business. So you definitely have to have a balance and not over-strategize. But for someone like me, I love just executing quickly. And I learn and iterate my strategy through just launching quickly. So in 2016, when we said, let's launch 30 products, and we got to 14, I mean, that was a strategy. But we ended up stumbling upon the greatest launch strategy that we could have ever found, which was crowdfunding, launching on crowdfunding. And that ended up Raising, you know, like I said, $1 million uh, in total. And we would have never been able to do that unless we, we, we came with the idea of let's do things fast. And a little caveat to that story was, you know, when Amazon changed that, the terms of service, we pivoted, right? We pivoted from launching our product on Amazon to Kickstarter. And we, we created our whole campaign within three months. The video, the script, the campaign page, all the all the. Photos and assets, like everything was done within less than three months. And it ended up grossing us the most of any product in in a short amount of time. So yeah, being able to execute quickly, think on your feet and and pivot uh, when
0: the market tells you to. What's one thing you believe that when you say to other people, other people think it's crazy? That's a good question. Oh, man yeah this one this one stumps people <laughs> i had I had heard that question a couple of times in the past, but I heard it recently. I think I was listening to Tim Ferris, and I was like, Oh, I want to start asking that <laughs>
1: <laughs> No, I haven't heard that question before, so it's actually a really good question. Why would people think I'm crazy?
0: It could also be something a theory that you have that people think is ridiculous or you know right I
1: think the the thing that people think that I'm crazy about, or if I tell them like this is possible and they think I'm crazy, at least three months ago, is that you can have an, <laughs> you can have an online business uh, and live, you can live successfully and happily uh, with an online business. Uh, the caveat being that when you start, you're not gonna make much money. Uh, but the simple hack is to travel to Asia <laughs> Where the cost of living is easily three to five times less than probably what you make, and either live the same lifestyle or discover something that you never knew, which is that I don't need all of the fancy shit of you know living in the city and having all this fancy stuff, all this material stuff to be happy. does that make
0: sense? Yeah, no, it does uh, I mean I think it's the, the biggest thing with that is uh, a lot of people just can't imagine themselves uprooting their comfortable Western existence and and coming to a place like Asia. They also don't know that, you know, there's amazing cities here. There's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of development going on, but like, you know, where I live in BGC, if I compare some of the areas of Toronto, like this place sometimes looks better or cleaner or more modern than, than Toronto. So it's just one of those things that people have to embrace a a little bit of a different, a different mindset and be open to the idea that you could have a very nice lifestyle while starting a business if you take the chance of of leaving your comfort zone
1: yeah exactly very well summarized even that too like living in toronto i felt like i didn't really have as many people to talk about e-commerce and specifically amazon at the time a lot of people were just doing it as a side hustle in toronto and I'm sure it's the same in many other cities. It wasn't really a hub for e-commerce, even though there are a lot of people that do e-commerce and are successful. But they kept to themselves or they did it as a side business. Versus if you go to places like Bali or Chiang Mai or Ho Chi Minh, everyone out there or even you know, in China, uh, Shenzhen, people that are there are there because they're serious about it. And so it's a lot easier to bump into people through networking or by accident in a coffee shop. It's easier to bump into people that are actually doing this successfully and are serious about it.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I remember going to entrepreneurship meetups before I left Toronto, and there were very few people that I met that were actually in e-commerce in the same way as, as what you find out, out here. And then even just like you're talking about going to coffee shops. I remember going to coffee shops with one of my buddies, and we were just trying to brainstorm sort of e-commerce ideas, and it felt like we were in like some sort of secret society. Like I, did, <laughs> and I looked around, <laughs> I was like, I was looking at people that were, you know, writers and people that were studying and I was like, you know, we're we're trying to brainstorm e-commerce business ideas. And yeah, no, it's just, it's just different when you're here immediately. When I, when I arrived in China, I remember having my first week in China, just like a million different ideas because I was meeting people that were already doing what I wanted to do. And then I was just exposed to a lot of opportunities so it just kind of like really pushes you to go after that that goal more aggressively.
1: Yeah. yeah, exactly. And in a way traveling abroad is kind of like burning the boat, not completely, but you know when you leave it automatically puts you in the mindset of like I have to succeed. Like I don't want to fly back to Canada or wherever your home is and and come home empty-handed. Like I did.
0: it puts you in a whole other mindset. What are uh, three books, blogs or podcasts you'd recommend? people check out if they were to understand you better
1: one of them is uh, has nothing to do with e-commerce or business and this was recommended to me by my business partner it's called happiness lab uh, you can find it for free on spotify it's by this uh, dr Lori santos and she is a yale professor psychology professor and she launched this brand new course for students about happiness how to be happy in your life and it ended up becoming the most in having the highest enrollment of any course at Yale and probably in the USA i think they had well over 10,000 students in their first year or first semester and they ended up having to rent out the Yale concert hall in order to facilitate all the students that wanted to be a part of this so the whole podcast is about happiness how to be happy in your life and looking at it from a really scientific perspective and why it's important. So everything from why it's important to have a a good social circle, or even why it's important to be social, even if it's with strangers, to how to be happy on a day to day, like what kind of practices can you have in your life? And I think it's a really important thing because especially for people like me, like entrepreneurs who, I just work way too much. Like last year I had like an anxiety attack, I had like health issues, even though I was working out a lot and a lot of it had to, had to do with balance, just like not focusing on my own happiness. So it's a really good podcast as a reminder of not only just why you should be happy, but also like tangible, executable steps on how you can practice happy, happiness on a day-to-day basis. The second one is The One Thing, a book by Gary Keller. And that was really pivotal for me reading that book because I, was, I had way too many things going on uh, two years ago. I still had my video business within my video business. I had like three different brands within my Amazon business. I also had like four brands. So in total, I was just spreading myself way too thin. So in 2018, I was like, just let's just cut everything and just focus on our coffee business because that's what's making money. And let's just see what happens. And as a result of cutting most of the things out of my business, it ended up making things a lot easier and it accelerated our growth. So definitely something to consider because I know a lot of entrepreneurs have this shiny object syndrome. It's like, Oh, what's next? What's next? So being grounded in like your purpose, uh, not just in your life, but in your business is really important so that you're growing at the speed that you want. And the last one is building a story brand by Donald Miller. So I mentioned that, you know, my, my expertise within e-commerce is branding and branding to me is not just about creating like a really cool looking product or really cool looking brand that people want to wear right? The underlying emotion and all of that is human connection, right? I want to buy these Nike shoes because it makes me look good to my friends and it makes me want to fit in. And it also makes me aspire to like some type of cool identity, right? It's not just about the product. It's about who it makes me become and my relationship with myself. So building a story brand is really good at helping people in marketing or anyone who wants to run a business how to really understand their customers, the target audience, how to understand how to make that customer the hero in their own lives, because a lot of brands will focus way too much on themselves. <laughs> so it's how do you make the customer the hero of that story? And then how do you get them to buy your product? Because obviously you're selling something to them. So how do you make them want to identify with your product and buy it? Not because it's, it's an innovative product, but also because it speaks to them. So they want to use it every day and tell all their friends about it because you know it's a part of who they are so those are three different books that i think help in in different ways in different areas of my life
0: the happiness one kind of resonated with me because yeah i think about when i first started i was very much like gary v mindset of just fucking hustle just grind you know fucking work 80 hours a week you know just constantly like that and i remember there was a couple times when i burnt out and one particular time was bad it was uh I think I'd worked like 21 days straight, like without taking any sort of breaks. And that time period, I was working like from you know, 7 o'clock in the morning to uh, you know, 1 a.m. and just press repeat with a little break to go to the gym in between. And I burnt out so bad, like I, I couldn't, I was just sitting in front of my computer for like a week. I couldn't do anything And then I was like, I'm not Gary Vaynerchuk, man. (laughs) I was like, I I just realized I had like one, I was like, what am I doing? You know, like, I'm not Gary V. I I can take some inspiration from that, but it's like, yeah, no, I need to schedule breaks. So I started doing that. And then when the business started to get a little little bit more comfortable in terms of uh, our financial situation, I decided to start traveling more because I hadn't that was a big part of the reason why I wanted to live in Asia and all that stuff was being in Guangzhou. You know, I was a two hour flight away from Manila, you know, one and a half hour flight away from Thailand and stuff like that. So it was like, I just consciously started to do that. And, you know, you feel guilty at the beginning, but a very good decision for me because those rests in between allowed me to be more Clear my thoughts and 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 more creative and come up with different ideas for for the business that we've implemented. And then, of course, a big part of the reason why I moved to the Philippines was was for happiness. Like uh, I found that I was actually less productive in China in the last year than when I was, you know, spending a month in other places that where I had like more comfort. So yeah, I think that's. A, I'll definitely be checking out that podcast.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a great listen, And just having that balance is so important.
0: Yeah. All right, man. So uh, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about?
1: No, man, it's been a great, great talk. Uh, definitely uh, loved hearing about some of the stories that you have as well and, and hearing the parallels and knowing that we have such a small, you know, a small network.
0: It's a small world. Cause I mean, I really, I was on Riley's show. And I, I was reading through the other people that were there. And I was like, yeah, I wanted to talk to people that I thought would be interesting. And I, I just read your bio and everything. And so I, d- I had no idea that we had so many similarities. I, d- I didn't know that we knew so many of the same people. It's kind of crazy.
1: Yeah, such a small world. And for anyone that that's just starting, you maybe you'll meet one of us one day. <laughs>
0: yeah, for sure. All right. So if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way they can find you?
1: Definitely check out the website. You'll, you can learn a lot about what we're doing up there, livemyplayground.com. And you know we have some free content up there. You can sign up for our, our, our list and we're not gonna sell you anything. It's just about giving you value. I mean, we have a course obviously, but we have a lot of free content that if you're new to it or if you're experienced in e-commerce and you're thinking about launching your next product and wanna figure out how to mitigate risk, definitely consider the stuff that I put out because not everyone's talking about it. Even something simple like the 5X rule, that anytime you sell a product, whether it's on Amazon or on crowdfunding, you should have a minimum 5X markup from your cost of goods. I didn't even know this like two years ago. And I know most people don't think about it, but that's something that I mentioned that for some reason no one else talks about. But yeah, you'll get stuff like that and more from from visiting the website or even if you're curious to read about what we do with Live My Playground and the kind of the stuff that we've done in the past, it's all there if you want to reach me by email, it's
0: uh, hello at livemyplayground.com. So we'll link up all of the resources that Johnny mentioned in the show notes at sourcefinage.com slash made in China hey what's up guys thanks for listening to this episode of the made in china podcast if you want to reach out to us that's podcast at sourcefinansia.com if you want to check out the show notes from the episode that you just watched that's sourcefinansia.com slash made in china and be sure to also check out our youtube channel Sourcefinasia, all one word cheers started from the bottom now we're here started from the bottom now the whole team fucking here i done kept you real front of jump Living at my mama's house, we dog you every month, nigga. I was trying to get it on my own. Working all night, traffic on the way home. And my uncle calling me, like, where you at? I gave you the keys, told so you bring it right back, nigga. I just think it's funny how it goes. Now I'm on the road, half a million for a show. And we started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom.